Britain's Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. Hello and welcome to the Rathbones Look Forward series. I'm Andrea Catherwood. In this second series, we're going to continue our focus on the future of this rapidly changing world. And we begin the new season of podcasts with the future of democracy. I'm going to be joined by award-winning British-Turkish novelist Elif Shafak. Elif is the most widely read woman author in Turkey. She's also a political scientist and a human rights activist. Elif, it's a pleasure to have you here today. And we're going to talk about a very big topic because we want to talk about the future of democracy. I suppose when I think about this, I think that there has probably never been a time when thinkers haven't been worried about democracy ever since it evolved, really, and said that democracy was under threat. But do you feel today, and specifically in the West, that we really are at a point where democracy is under threat? I think for a long time there was this assumption that some parts of the world were regarded as solid lands, like safe, steady, everything was stable, and some other parts of the world were regarded as liquid lands, where I come from, Turkey, for instance. But I believe after the year 2016, that dualistic assumption has been shattered to pieces. Now we know that there's no such thing as you know, completely solid lands. We're all living in liquid times, as the late Zygmunt Bauman told us. Well, 2016 is the, uh, the election of Donald Trump and uh, when the UK voted for Brexit. Are these what you're looking at when you, when you think of this? Definitely. Those and, and, and much more at mm-hmm. the same time. But I find it quite interesting. In 2017, Freedom House, they um, released a report showing that 35 countries had made progress, which looks like good news. But it also said 71 countries, twice as many, had been going backwards very fast. And of course, Turkey, where I come from, is one of those countries. So for me, it's very essential to understand that history does not always necessarily go forward. Time is not linear. Sometimes countries can go backwards. And when that happens, when they fall into nationalism, tribalism, isolationism, populism, I think we women should be more worried because we have much more to lose. I would love to talk a little bit more about women later on. I just want to talk about this broad idea, though, that, you know, we look at, for example, the United States, and, okay, you know, they have an election, you know, they have a set election time. So even if even if Donald Trump is not your cup of tea, even if you think that actually what he's doing is undermining democracy, surely there is enough in the US Constitution to mean that this is this is a blip, this is a one-off. Are you more worried than that? I am much more worried than that because history also shows us that country after country, when populists have come to power or when populism has affected the language of mainstream politics, things have changed from that moment onwards. And when populist demagogues are in power, such as in Turkey or Hungary, we've seen very similar trends in other parts of the world, from Poland to Venezuela, Um, or or to the Philippines, the list is so long. What happens is they start to change the judiciary, you know, judges, and then they start to change the electoral system, um, even the constitution. But equally worrisome for me is to see how society becomes polarized. That was actually a very interesting part of Donald Trump's, one of his many uh, speeches. He said, the important thing for us is to unite the people As for the other people, they don't mean anything. They don't matter. To me, that is what populism does. It divides people into real people and the other people who don't matter as much. 
that is a very, very dangerous division that we should all, all be aware of. When you look at the rise of populism in the US, there have been an awful lot of, uh, of journalists who scratched their head and rushed off to the Rust Belt to suddenly talk to those blue-collar workers that they felt had voted for Trump. Um, and, and they kind of left their, their elite harbours of, uh, of uh, the east coast of America to do so. Similarly, we had the same thing in the UK with Brexit, where our metropolitan elite journalists all rushed off to Sunderland or wherever else to have a look at what was going on and why people had voted the way they had. When you look at this from your point of view, as both a novelist and a human rights activist, when you look at this, what do you see as that underlying populism? What, what caused it? Do you try and, and sympathise and empathise with what's in people's minds that made them change and vote the way they have done? There's a very clear distinction. I think we need to be open-minded and, and enter into new conversations and try to understand also people who have voted for Trump or for Brexit. And we need to also clearly understand that not everyone who voted Brexit is a, is a xenophobe or not everyone who voted for Trump is an Islamophobe. No, no, not at all. So I make a very clear distinction. People in very different parts of the country have very legitimate concerns about the present situation or they have anxieties about the future. And I should be able to understand, to hear those concerns. But while I'm doing that, while I go beyond my own echo chamber, I should also be very critical of those populist politicians who have been exploiting people's legitimate concerns and anxieties for their own selfish political interests. So I make a very clear distinction between the populist elite and the people for various, who for various reasons have been voting for populist parties. There's a distinction there. And I use the word populist elite very deliberately, very consciously, because I think populists, even though they claim to speak for the people, in fact, they have no problem with elitism as long as they are the elite themselves. When we look at world events, I wonder if you see a kind of a cascade in terms of human rights. So you were talking about democracy being under threat in the US and indeed you referenced the idea of the judiciary, which we've seen Donald Trump take quite an active role in recently. Do you think then that other countries where, as you've said, democracy is more fluid, and I'm looking at the Middle East here, feel that perhaps they can get away with a little bit more on the world stage? I'm talking about sort of obscene human rights abuses without such censure. We saw what happened to uh, the Washington Post journalist Hamil Khashoggi, who was a Saudi citizen, but who was killed in Turkey. And I think these are very worrying times for journalists, for um, people who are interested in truth. And I find it very dangerous that extremists in one country encourage extremists elsewhere. And just like that, populists in one part of the world also encourage, embolden populists elsewhere. Many dictators, many demagogues feel emboldened in today's world because they know that they can get away with many things that they wouldn't be able to get away with maybe five years ago or ten years ago. So that shift is very, very troubling. And I think we all need to understand that as world citizens, we can all lose our liberties, freedoms. Nothing can be taken for granted. Time can go backwards. That is why I believe this is a very important moment for us to become more engaged citizens, more active citizens, uh, and to understand that politics is way too important to leave to career politicians. Uh, 
And by that, I don't mean we have to become involved in party politics. I'm not interested in party politics. I don't like partisan politics either. But it's shared values about liberal democracy, about pluralism, freedom of speech, human rights, women's rights, minority rights. You know, those are the core values for me that are very much under threat today. And on those issues, I don't think we have the luxury of being silent. I want to move on now and talk a little bit about the idea that democracy could disappear. I think that most people in the UK feel that that just is not something that could happen. It's something that could and has happened in other countries, but it's not something that could possibly happen in the UK. Democracy couldn't die in the UK. That's just a ridiculous thought, isn't it? I think democracy is uh, far more fragile than we assume. It's a very delicate ecosystem and it needs to be nurtured, it needs to be protected, and it also needs to be regenerated. There isn't a single country that is completely immune or inoculated against anti-democratic tendencies. In fact, it's quite interesting, until recently, many scientists, political scientists, used to believe that Germany was one of those places because having witnessed the atrocities of um, racism and xenophobia and the dark tunnel that all those things have taken humanity into, People thought that Germany would never, ever see the rise of ultranationalism and far-right ever again, and they were wrong. So no country is, is immune, and that is why I think we need to understand that we are all in this boat together. It does matter for us to be attached to a place, to have a sense of belonging and the love for the culture and the country where we come from, and yet at the same time also care about other countries, other cultures, and bear in mind that we are world citizens, we are global souls simultaneously. When we talk about the erosion of democracy, you mentioned this idea that we would be you know, tumbling backwards into nationalism, tribalism and populism. Do you actually see that happening today in the UK? Well, I think the, the, the language of politics is changing in the UK. Mm. I remember more than a decade ago when I first moved to London, I was thinking people are very calm here when they talk about politics. And Perhaps before, not very engaged uh, at all, actually. But that is changing, yeah. interestingly. Before the referendum, during the referendum, I've seen people becoming more emotional, even friendships becoming affected by those political divisions. On the one hand, it's good that people are feeling more passionate and engaged about politics. But on the other hand, I think there's a decline in trust. And that can lead to people um, looking for different alternatives. The faith in democracy is eroding, and I find that very, very worrisome. In Germany, in the UK, and in the US, we, we observe the same pattern. When you look at the young people, the number of people who identify themselves with radical left and radical right has now doubled. In Sweden, that number has tripled. So when people are not content with the system, they start to swing toward the opposites. And then politics becomes much more tribalistic, much more toxic and antagonistic. And I come from a country that is bitterly polarized. And I know that when countries are so badly divided, the only people who benefit from that are the populist demagogues at the top. So I don't want that to happen. For me, it's very important to have a culture of coexistence. You've actually been put on trial in Turkey for writing a novel, which is something that most people will find extraordinary. I mean, it was about the Armenian genocide and it was based on real events loosely, but it was a novel. Does that make you much more attuned to how fragile democracy is? And do you think when you look around in the UK, where, where you spend so much of your time, that 
we're a little bit complacent here. There is a political complacency, yes, and I find that dangerous, to mm. be honest. Uh, I think we also need to understand that democracy is does not solely depend on the ballot box. Uh, elections are, of course, very important, free, fair elections. They matter enormously. But in addition to the ballot box, we need rule of law, separation of powers, definitely a free and diverse independent media, an independent academia, minority rights, and a robust civil society where people from very different diverse backgrounds feel equally welcome, equally at home. Together with all those components, a democracy can survive. Now, if the components are damaged and there's only ballot box remaining, that system is not a democracy anymore. It falls into majoritarianism and from majoritarianism into authoritarianism, there's a very short, swift decline as we've seen in Turkey. For me, being prosecuted for writing a novel was a very surreal experience. I um, remember, of course, that whole year, it went on for a year, There were mobs, ultranationalist groups on the streets spitting at my picture, spitting at EU flag. and um, The charge yeah. was really that you had sort of a discredited Turkey, was that the idea? Yeah, I was accused of insulting Turkishness mm -hmm. under Article 301, even though nobody knows what insulting Turkishness means. It's so vague. It can be interpreted and misinterpreted in any way you want. But of course, the words of my fictional characters were taken out of the book and used as evidence in the courtroom. And as a result, my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom. So everything felt very, very surreal. Um, but at the same time, people read the book. There was a lot of amazing feedback, mostly from women readers, which taught me perhaps in a very strong way the importance of words, the importance of stories to mend fractures, to bridge gaps. So I do believe that in today's world, storytellers need to speak up more in the public space. I want to talk a little bit more about women because you've mentioned that in this idea of democracy being, being under threat, it's women and minorities who are the first to lose and, and who have the most to lose. And I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about that. Because um, it's not a coincidence, whenever nationalism is on the rise, tribalism is on the rise, also we see a rise in sexism, in misogyny and homophobia. People become much more intolerant or they, become, they find it more easier to express their intolerance uh, towards minorities because now it's, it's okay to say these things all of a sudden. Uh, and that is why I find the toxicity of, of politics inside political language very, very dangerous. When sexism is on the rise, um, we also see a, a swift decline in women's rights. Most of the rights that we think belong to us, imagine we didn't really fight for them because women who lived before us and minorities who lived before us have fought for those rights. And now we are enjoying those rights in our generation. But now maybe we have entered a new age, a historical period in which we have to understand that we can lose these rights. There can be a very swift decline backwards from LGBT right, rights to women's rights. Uh, we've, we're also seeing very alarming signals of this kind of potential decline in America. So I think it's a very important moment for not only global solidarity, but also global sisterhood and the broader women's movement that embraces women of all backgrounds and also goes hand in hand with LGBT movement. 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because many people would say, well, look, with the success of the Me Too movement over the past 18 months, we've actually made quite big strides. And yet, actually, if you look at what's going on uh, constitutionally in the US, then those might be undermined. So the idea in one space that we're talking a lot about what, what can be done for women and women's rights actually doesn't translate to what's happening in, in the US legally. That is very true. And I think we, ha we need to go beyond our own echo chambers. Um, of course, I find the Me Too movement incredibly important. But to me, it was also very interesting to see in a couple of months, we started to ask ourselves, did we go too far? I mean, we have centuries and centuries of patriarchy, and I don't see anyone questioning and saying, well, maybe we've gone too far. You know, immediately we start doubting ourselves. Immediately we start slowing down, and we shouldn't. I think it was very important for women to share their stories, personal stories. If you can share your story with me, it will be easier for me to share mine with someone else. We encourage, we empower each other. So that should never wither away. But also it's very important for, I believe, feminist movements, and I use the word in plural deliberately, not to retreat into identity politics. I am very critical of identity politics. I think as human beings, we have multiple belongings. And one so of by identity politics, you mean that people actually have a, have a singular sort of identity. For example, they consider themselves to be an LGBT yeah. group or a feminist group. Or, and only that. Yeah, or, or a black group. Yeah, yeah, and only that or primarily that. And I think that's a step backward. Yeah. I have um, lived in different parts of America, taught in different parts of America. And when I was in Boston, one of the things that left a huge impact on me was reading about African-American women's movement of previous generations. And those women in 1960s, 70s, every speech they gave was almost like a, like a manifesto for multiplicity. So when you read people like Audre Lorde, she says, you know, I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm lesbian, I'm a poet, I'm this and that, and I'm many more things you might not be able to see when you look at me at the first glance. The interesting thing about these women was, of course, because they were women, they were aware of sexism. Because they were black, they knew about racism. Because many of them came from lower uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, they knew about class discrimination. And again, because many of them were LGBT members, they knew about homophobia or transphobia. So they knew that there were many layers of discrimination, not just one. And instead of retreating into a tribe based on a singular identity, there was always this emphasis on multiplicity that unfortunately today in women's movement we're about to lose. And that worries me. I wonder if you see that kind of identity politics uh, in the UK at the moment becoming quite strong in a way that perhaps we haven't seen for a long time when we've actually had quite centrist politics here until recently. That is very true. And actually, many people feel frustrated, understandably, about two-party politics and how it's not helping us anymore. Um, when I look at the UK, around three percentage of our MPs come from blue-collar backgrounds. That wasn't always the case until actually not that long ago. Many Labour MPs had very strong roots in trade union towns or many more conservative MPs were connected with agricultural communities. But now there's a widening gap and more and more politicians start to look similar. They're educated in similar schools and, and the gap between them and the people is widening. 
of course, we have to talk about inequality. We need to talk about financial and economic inequality, political inequality, which is making everything worse. So I think when people feel alienated in that way, their frustration about the system grows and they become more inclined to retreat into tribes where they feel safer. But that kind of safety is an illusion. We're not going to be safer if we're surrounded by sameness. If I'm only surrounded by people who think like me, vote like me, speak like me, that's a very narcissistic existence. I'm only surrounded by the echoes of my own voice. So to me, the biggest challenge is how do we bridge the gaps? How do we reach out to people who come from very different backgrounds and still find a common language? I think that is going to be one of the massive challenges in front of us in the following decade. You mentioned the fact that 2016 was a kind of a key moment, if you like, in democracy and and as a threat to democracy, that this was a tipping point moment. Technology has also changed our world. And in the past two years, it's taken over as never before. In a way, it's made our world so much smaller. Uh, you know, we can see things that are happening all around the world, particularly on Facebook and on Twitter, Instagram and these sites. Um but I wonder what you think about whether or not it is a friend or a foe. I think that's a very a good question and, and one that we need to ask ourselves now boldly because for too long we have only spoken about the bright side of the social media. Mm. For me, social media is a bit like the moon. You know, It has a bright side for sure, but it also has a dark side. And when I look at late 1990s, early 2000s, there was so much optimism and most of that optimism came from the people in the tech world, that kind of tech optimism, that thought, thanks to new technologies, we were all going to become one big global village. And thanks to new digital mediums, the, the Middle East was going to democratize almost by magic. You will remember when there were uprisings in Iran, it was called Twitter Revolution. And, and in, indeed, the Arab Spring. And the Arab Spring. Was, uh, a lot of people looked at the Arab Spring and said that this was because of social media yes. that people could connect so well together. And indeed, that we and the rest of the world could see this in real time. It was the first time that had happened. Absolutely. But that kind of optimism, it was exaggerated mm -hmm. and it was unfounded. Um, they were predicting that thanks to Facebook, dictatorships would topple down. Uh, also, let's, let us not forget um, that there, there was a baby girl born at that time who was born to Facebook. So as we're speaking, there's yes. a young woman named Facebook whose name symbolizes the optimism of those early days. Now, fast forward, today we have swung to the other end. And I think now is the right time to talk about the dark side of social media because that is a reality. Instead of uh, making us more connected in a much more egalitarian way, it also divided us into tribes, like atomized individuals, where we seek people who think like us. Um, that kind of tribalism is very dangerous, but it, the social media also gave a disproportionate voice to people who were relatively more marginal on the periphery, politically speaking, like the far right, like white supremacists. Now, thanks to algorithms, and we need to talk about how those algorithms are connected with the advertisements and with profit. You know, these are the things that are very difficult to talk about. But now those voices are seeping into mainstream culture. And I find that very dangerous as well. And thirdly, what I find quite alarming is this, the level of misinformation, slander, hate speech. You will remember in France, um, this happened during the elections, 
to me, it was so vivid. There was a moment when Macron went to a factory, a fish factory, where the, the workers were cleaning eel, you know. And so it's, it's an interesting moment. He just rolls up his sleeves like many politicians, starts chatting with the workers, and he starts gutting an eel. And afterwards, his hands are dirty. He goes, washes his hands, and shakes hands with the workers and leaves. That is the video. So the, in France... Um, the far right have taken this video, they edited the video, they took out the fish detail, no more eel, and in this new video spread everywhere by the far right in France, Macron goes to a factory, he shakes hands with a worker, he looks at his hands, he's disgusted because he has just touched an ordinary man, he goes and washes his hand. And the video says, you see, he's an elitist. So what I'm trying to say is the truth is being eroded by these new technologies. And we all need to be very, very alarmed about this because it's going to affect everything. And if we look at someone like Donald Trump, he was an absolute and is a master of Twitter. So something that was supposed to be very egalitarian has in fact allowed people who can use this new technology. And perhaps this isn't new. Perhaps at any point when new technology has been invented the world over from, you know, for... Uh, from, from the invention of the printing press, whoever can control it and whoever can use it best is going to win. That is true. I mean, propaganda is as, as old as you know, humanity and we've seen examples of this very dangerous forms of propaganda throughout human political history. Yet at the same time, I think there's something very new happening here. Let us also bear in mind that 2016 was the first elections in America in which over 60% of Americans... Uh, receive their information not from mainstream media, but from social media. If social media is where we're learning our information from, then we need to be very careful because maybe it's the right time to make a distinction between information, knowledge, and wisdom. They're completely different things. Sometimes when we are bombarded with too much information, actually the less we know, our knowledge starts to diminish. So to me, that is very troubling. Also, the loss of nuances. We have lost uh, almost the ability to speak and talk in a more nuanced way. And the media is also increasing this because, again, we are divided. And now everything is about either or. Are you there or are you here? It is better for ratings if you have people with opposite views shouting at each other. Even in academia, where we're supposed to have a more nuanced way of thinking, it troubles me to see, you know, every panel we have two opposite thinkers trying to gain more support from the audience, but that's not a proper intellectual exchange. You know, in an intellectual exchange, you say, you know, I have my thoughts, I have thought about them, but I'm also ready to hear you, to listen to you. And if I am convinced by your thoughts, I'm ready to change. So it's, the door is open. I don't see that anymore. More and more, I think we are, we are changing the language of politics and the, the, the way we talk about politics is being affected too. On these podcasts, we've talked a lot about fake news and uh, a lack of trust and what we see online. And indeed, the idea that many people realised, perhaps in the last two years, a kind of a revolution that the information that they took from Facebook wasn't as much as the information that they had given to Facebook and to Google and to these other uh, media giants. And I wonder when you talk to your students, because one of your many hats, uh, as well as being a novelist, you're, or you also lecture, you're a professor, a visiting professor. And I think you were in, at Oxford University yeah. recently. Mm. You're talking to a, a generation that has grown up um, in this digital age and they're you know, talking to 18, 19, 20 year olds. 
What do they think at the moment about the social media that is a part of their lives? Are they nervous about it? Do they do they see it as something that is is providing them with, as you say, knowledge and wisdom, or just too much information? I think now more and more they're becoming nervous about yeah. it, but not until now, because this is what they were born into. To them, it's quite normal. It's just part of their daily lives, and also because everything is based on speed, you don't really have time to think and stop and look within. It's there's no room for introspection. But now, as we're speaking about the dark side of technology and how our relations, our daily life, even what we eat, how we dress up, whom we communicate with, so much personal information is being gathered without our knowledge, without us being aware, and mostly used for purposes of profit, but also there's a room for political misusage. So people should be very alarmed about this. And I think we, we, we need to understand that the technological world is moving so fast, we're oftentimes lagging behind, really not quite understanding how it works. If Facebook can be used to discriminate against a minority, you know, to, to initiate genocide in one part of the world, we should be concerned, of course. If the same... That's a very bold yeah. statement. Do you really think that that can happen, that Facebook and other social media platforms can be used to create and to influence genocide? Of course, we've seen it. I mean, I'm not saying it is the only reason, but mm. we have seen how um, slander, xenophobia, bigotry, very jingoistic language have been spread on Facebook. For instance, we've seen it in the case of the Rohingya minority massacres. This is exactly what happened with Facebook. Or another example, if in different parts of Africa, girls, children we're talking about, can be auctioned on Facebook... And by the time people are, you know, alarmed about this and they try to stop, that girl is already married off to someone 40 years older than her. Then we should all be concerned as women, as citizens. There are many more examples in which social media is being used in, in horrible ways. And therefore, I don't think we have the luxury of saying, you know, it's happening in another part of the, of the digital world. I'm also concerned about this information ghettos, uh, more and more people are in their own almost islands, you know, and then you have parallel truths. We don't really read the same kind of sources. If we can't agree about the truth, how are we going to find a language of common ground? So I guess all I'm trying to say is we're also being divided into epistemic tribes. You know, we get our knowledge, our information from completely different sources, and that should be uh, one of our concerns as well. I want to move on now to talk to you about what we can do. We've identified a lot of problems with our society at the moment and indeed with democracy and with the future of democracy. But there must also be solutions out there. As ordinary citizens, if you're listening to this podcast right now thinking, gosh, really, I think, I think we've been a little bit complacent about the dangers that we face, what can you do? You know, I like, um, there's a saying by Gramsci that I like very much. He used to talk about the pessimism of the intellect, but the optimism of the heart, the optimism of the will. And I think this is the right moment for us to remember that motto, because we need to be a bit more pessimistic. We need to understand that there's too much at stake, and liberal, pluralistic democracy is far more fragile than we thought. It is possible to lose it. So we need that kind of pessimism in order to be more alert and active and engaged citizens. 
but we also need the optimism of the heart. And that will come when we connect with people, especially with young people, with people of very different backgrounds, women, minorities. You know, when you talk to people, it's amazing to see human resilience. And both need to go hand in hand. Uh, to me, in the year 2019, finally, we need to make inequality a priority. This has been going on for too long. Uh, when you look at all the data, ever since mid-1980s onwards, the, the median income, you know, household income has been static. Meanwhile, the 1% have been increasing their profit, their wealth, doubling, you know, tripling. And the, the gap between these two is just widening and widening. It is very important for people to have hope and dreams. But when things become, feel frozen, then they think, okay, there's, it's not possible to have dreams anymore. So people have very legitimate concerns about maybe the well-being of their children. Is it going to be easier for the next generation? Many people are concerned about this. And it's also okay to talk about immigration, people's concerns about, uh, about refugees. You know, we need to be able to create open spaces where we can talk about these issues in a balanced way. If we cannot talk, then we're pushing more and more people into the lap of the far right, and that worries me. Do you put uh, the, uh, the rise of populism down to the, the, the economic downturn and the credit crunch and, the, and, and inequality that, as, as you say, has been on the increase since the 1980s? I think the, the rise of populism that we're seeing in very different parts of the world cannot be reduced to a single cause, but certainly economy and economic inequality is a big part of this. Um, there has been an interesting research by a group of German scientists, political scientists. They studied, going all the way back to 19th century, they studied 800 elections from then to this day. And what they found out was after every financial crisis, the next political landscape favored the rise of far-right and ultranationalism. Now, we had a major financial crisis, and we're still not dealing with the causes of that in a very honest way. People, you know, many people feel like the real people who were responsible for the crisis were just able to walk away. But in the meantime, people who had nothing to do with the reasons of the financial crisis have been suffering under austerity. We need to talk about that as well. But I'm not saying economic inequality is the only reason. I think we need to talk about the importance of emotions too. And this is a very interesting subject because oftentimes political science underestimates the importance of emotions. But I believe this is the age of anxiety, almost an existential angst. It's the age of anger, frustration, resentment. So we must have more emotional intelligence on the table in order to deal with um, that change in emotions as well. And thirdly, uh, I think we need to talk about demographic change. Again, that's a big, big, big issue. In many parts of particularly Eastern Europe, we see the population is decreasing. But also in many parts of the world, the balance between what used to be a majority until now and what used to be a minority now is changing. In places like Texas, California, uh, right now it is minority-majority states. In 2050, America for the first time is going to become a minority-majority country. So the impact, the psychological impact of that on certain segments of the population is also important. And fourthly, if I may add this, I think we need to look at digital technologies and social media and, and change it and reform it because 
as it is, the way tech monopolies are operating, they're not doing democracy any good, just the opposite, they're harming it. So there are lots of things we can do together, but for that to happen, I think we need to be more engaged in every conversation. You talked about emotions. It's interesting, isn't it, that perhaps politicians in the past really didn't engage with people's emotions. And in 2016, both Donald Trump and the Brexit campaign actually operated on a very emotional level and it was successful, wasn't it? Yeah, but isn't that quite um, worrying in many ways because I think populists, unfortunately, are doing a much better job in terms of connecting with people's emotions than many rational liberals or rational democrats are doing. But then the liberals have failed rather by actually not engaging on an emotional level. Yeah, I don't want to generalize too much because within the liberal democratic community, progressive community, there have been so many voices actually who have been criticizing lots of things for a long time, but maybe their voices were not picked up by democratic or liberal politicians. So I don't want to generalize too much, but, but however, uh, it is also true to say that demagogues, populist demagogues, have been unfortunately much better at pu- using a far more emotional language in a much more efficient way. And that means we need to have more emotional intelligence, you know. Uh, for me, emotional intelligence is a combination. We are very right to feel angry. We're very right to feel frustrated. But neither anger nor frustration can be our primary motivation. We need positive emotions that goes hand in hand with a rational analysis. When you look at your students who are a younger generation, do you look at them and you think actually you are more emotionally intelligent perhaps or more in touch with their emotions than previous generations? Can you see, is there any difference there? I think they're amazing in terms of the questions they're asking. Mm. You know, they dare to question so many issues and raise difficult questions. That always gives me hope when I speak to young people. However, it doesn't necessarily translate into the political space because oftentimes those conversations they're having in safer zones, you know, among friends, on university campuses, we need to bring into the public space more diverse voices. We need more women speaking up in the public space. We need more minorities and people of all backgrounds, of all colors, expressing their opinions in the public space. So coming from the Middle East, for me, it has always been interesting to see how we can be bold and brave in our private space. But as long as that doesn't translate into the public space, things are not going to change. And very often uh, students don't want to do that. They actually want to stay in those safe spaces. So perhaps if they are having really interesting conversations that would be of benefit to a wider audience, they need to be encouraged uh, to come out and actually talk in an area where they may be criticised. Yes, and that has been a, a big issue, of course. And I have these debates with my students all the time. And I see this trend on both sides of the Atlantic, actually, Uh, more and more young people want safe spaces, but those spaces are not safe, you know. Uh, What we need is to challenge the public space and the public space to challenge us. I think it's very important to be able to engage, to take part in conversations with people who think very differently than us. That is good. The one line that I draw is the kind of hate speech that incites violence. I think that's something else. And we don't need speakers who directly incite violence. But other than that, I should be able to listen to people who, whose views are completely op- in a, opposition to mine and still enter into a conversation and engage in conversation with them. 
when you listen to those young voices and when you hear what they have to say, do you, do you think we've got reason to be optimistic looking forward? Well, there's, a, there, there's an interesting uh, research actually carried out by Yesha Munk from Harvard University. And that, that research stayed with me because it also shows the importance of memory. So when people in different countries were asked how vital it was for them to live under a democracy, people above a certain age, people who had the memory of the Second World War or the aftermath of the Second World War, overwhelmingly said that it was vital for them to live in a democratic society. But when the same question was asked to millennials, only one third of them found democracy a vital necessity. Why? Partly because they take it for granted, but partly because they don't have the memory of a time, of a world, you know, and how dark things can get when liberal democracy has died. So um, being young doesn't necessarily mean progressive automatically, or being young doesn't necessarily mean being aware of the importance of democracy. And this is something that I observe actually in a, in a wider sense too, because I, every time I travel to the Middle East, Unfortunately, I hear even very well-educated or well-meaning people saying, you know what, maybe democracy is not our thing. Maybe it doesn't suit our national character. It's a Western concept anyhow. So that enormous loss of faith in liberal pluralistic democracy, I think, should concern all of us. And so the question in front of us is how do we restore that faith? And I'm going to ask you that question to finish off. What do we do to help restore that faith, not just in this country and in the United States, but actually as, as a beacon, if you like, for democracy that may be picked up elsewhere across the world? Yeah, we have to talk about more and more. Of course, democracy is not a bed of roses. It has enormous flaws. And as I said, we need to talk about the many inequalities that we have been experiencing for too long. That is unacceptable. But as a political system, liberal pluralistic democracy is the best system that humanity could come up with. And it has brought far more prosperity, um, safety and freedoms than any other system has. Rather than abandoning what we have, it is much better to reform it, to see where we fail, to see it, its flaws and to improve it. Um, and, and do this in a very earnest, in a very candid way, and, and with, with a sense of emergency, with a sense of urgency. But to abandon it would be an enormous mistake. And we don't have to be old to know that. You know, every time we read about history, and I'm not talking about history that happened long time ago, it is still in living memory. We do know what a dark tunnel humanity enters into every time nationalism, tribalism, and authoritarianism have been on the rise. Elif, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. It was fascinating. Thank you. I appreciate it. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.